Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I am your host, Megan Hall, founder of Megan Hall Motivation. I motivate and inspire women to create their own version of a thriving life. And on this podcast, I'm going to connect you with inspirational women who will share their real stories and chat about topics relevant to today's modern women. Don't forget to join our virtual community on Facebook, the Inspire Women Community. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. Hey everybody, I just wanted to pop in here real quick before we start the interview and let you know that this is a little bit of a heavy topic. Probably not super appropriate to listen around kids, so maybe wait until the kiddos aren't around if you're a parent or pop in some headphones. This is an amazing story and it's really going to open your mind on many levels, but I just wanted to let you know that ahead of time so we're not getting into it and you're like, oh my gosh, I gotta pause, I gotta pause, I'm like, my Megan, you didn't warn me. I'm warning you now. So enjoy this interview. Hey, everybody. Today I'm here with Tina. So Tina Pennington is the founder of Beloved Haven, a faith-based organization that offers restorative care free of cost to women victims of sex trafficking. And when, when Tina applied to be on the podcast and I saw this, I was like, wow, this is a really heavy subject, but it's something that we don't talk enough about. And on this podcast, we break all molds when it comes to things like that. So I really want to, you know, dive deep in this and Um, let people know it is really something that happens out there in the world. And we'll talk more about that later. The ministry works to equip communities to identify, rescue, and restore victims. Tina has served in numerous community and outreach programs, such as Mayak Women's Club, Girl Scouts, as a troop leader for many years. She's the founder of Women Empowering Women. Um, I Will Stand International, and she's been on I Will Stand International as a board member and she's missionary and founder of Rise Hands for Africa. Tina and her husband, Dan, own a cafe in their community of Currituck, North Carolina. It's Currituck, right? Yes, it is. Very good. That's a hard one. <laughs> Yay. They have been married for 25 years and have five beautiful t- children. Tina is an ordained minister and has been involved in women's ministry locally and globally for 15 years. During her years in ministry, she has encountered various forms of brokenness and defeat, Many of the stories are similar to her own, having struggled herself with brokenness, seasons of depression, and a feeling of worthlessness for many, many of her life, many years of her life, wondering if she'd ever be free of despair. So Tina, I'm really, really excited to have you on this podcast and to talk more about, you know, Beloved Haven, what you're doing to help women, um, who have been victims of sex trafficking. So I'm wondering like what inspired you to start Beloved Haven in the first place? Wow, Megan, you know, um, my life has been an up and down roller coaster. I'm sure that many women could probably testify to that as well. Um, as moms, as women, as just young girls, we go through so many changes in our lives. Just starting out as um, teenagers just trying to figure out who we are. And, um, and I was always looking to fit in, you know, looking for that place where I could fit in, um, and craving love from all the wrong places. And that type of journey really can be very destructive, very destructive. Um, and so during my teenage years, I was, um, involved in many, um, I don't, I don't want to say um, destructive uh, situations, but a lot of broken places. You know, I was, I was in a lot of broken places 
without even realizing how broken it was going to cause me down the road. The brokenness that I would feel in my heart down the road because of some of the choices that I had um, set out on. Mm-hmm. And so um, going into an adult, uh, marrying my husband, I, I carried that brokenness into my marriage. And um, I really didn't know that I was broken. Honestly, you don't really know that, that you are um, in a state of depression or a state of um, unworthiness until you start seeing other people's lives around you and you start wondering why yours doesn't look that way. And I remember my husband making a comment one day and he said to me, he said, you know, you really need help. You know, you have, you have a lot of deep hurts where you really need to talk to somebody. And I got really angry because that's just the way I had always been. You know, I just know brokenness and that was just who I was. In fact, I had a, um, a very common statement that I would make saying, um, this is who I am, whether you like it or not, this is who I am. But deep down inside, I knew that wasn't me. And I, I ached for the real Tina. And I wanted to know who that was because I had never gotten to meet her. I had covered her up with all these illusions of who I thought I was. Um, and so I would love to say that it happened instantly, but unfortunately it was a long life journey. Um, went through many ups and downs and changes of, of being a mother, being a wife, having sick children, um, friendships that, that didn't go well, relationships that didn't go well, um, and more brokenness occurred. And so I pretty much just thought that's the way I would live out my life. And then I had an encounter with God. And, you know, we hear these stories all the time where people say, and I heard a voice from heaven and it, it shook the ground. And honestly, that's exactly what happened for me. And, um, and it was in a very desperate time in my life when I was pregnant with my son. I had just lost my daughter to an undetected heart defect and got pregnant again because you have this, this crazy thought that if you do it all over again, it doesn't make what happened real. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking that I could pick up the pieces from where it all crumbled apart with this new baby. It's something that happens to your mind in a grieving process. I can't really explain it. I've I've watched people walk through grieving processes and it's very similar that you just think that if you just pretend it didn't happen, then it didn't. And so I thought that having another baby was going to erase all of that. Unfortunately, he was um, born with half a heart and was given a 20% chance of survival. And at the time when they found this heart defect, Um, they told us to terminate the pregnancy. I was five months uh, uh, pregnant with him and at an ultrasound, I could tell on the, on the face of the nurse that it wasn't good. Um, But my mind really wasn't in the right place to process that, but I knew something wasn't right. And so when they brought us back in the next day and they told us the news, I mean, I just fell to the ground. My mom was with me. It was devastating. And um, at that point, I thought that was kind of the end of my life. And you have to remember that I was already so broken that trying to pick up the pieces and then being faced with something like this again, 
I didn't really have anything left. I felt like there was just nothing left in me. Um, and so I cried out. I cried out to a God I really didn't even know. Honestly, I didn't even know who this God was, just knew that people had spoke of him. Um, and as a child, you know, I had prayed to God, um, never had that faith that somebody was actually listening on the other end. I just thought of this big old God that, you know, created the universe, um, but never really thought that he actually heard. Um, and I heard his voice. And he said to me, no matter what happens, you're going to be okay. And I always tell people, you know, I'd love to say that he said, everything's going to be okay. Nothing's going to happen. But that's not what he said. He said, whatever happens, you're going to be okay. And it was enough for me to grab a glimpse of hope. And for the next four months of my pregnancy, I was like a warrior on a mission. And I was going to find the best care for my son the best um, hospital in the States, the best doctor, and I was going to research and educate myself. And he turned 18 years old this year. So, um, so God is faithful. And I will tell you this, I didn't instantly fall in love with God, and I didn't instantly change my life, and I didn't instantly become well. Um, I still struggled for many, many, many years, went down a really deep, dark road of depression after my son was born because of the grieving process of my daughter. And I had many other obstacles with my children that some other illnesses had come into light. And so I spent a lot of time in and out of the emergency room and in different hospitals. Um, St. Jude's was one of our research programs that we went through for five years. So I went through a lot of trials and tribulations, but I didn't do it alone. And that was the difference. So in this process of all of these trials that were taking place, God was also healing my heart without me really even knowing. And I was being healed out of all of these devastating um, situations that were coming into my life. And so um, I don't even know really when the year was. They all kind of run together because it's just so many things happening. Um, but at some point, I think my daughter might have been about two years old, we started going to church because I felt like that's something we had to do. And I heard a missionary speak at one of the services, and it broke my heart. And I knew that I had to somehow know more about that. I didn't really know what missionaries did, but I knew that I had to be a part of it. And so that set me on a journey to Africa. And um, I went and started a nonprofit called Raised Hands for Africa. And what we did is we would go over to different parts of Africa, different countries, and we would find the need. And we would come back home and raise money for that. And so in that process, God was showing me a different type of brokenness than what I had. And I was being able to um, heal myself by being able to love on people who were less fortunate than myself. And I was seeing things in a different light than what I had ever seen before, that there were people that were much worse off than I was. Um, and it's amazing how God will do that, how God will let you be a part of something that you never even knew existed because you're in your own bubble. You know, you just think that what's going on in your life is the worst thing that could possibly be going on. And then you go into a country where people are literally starving to death. That's a whole new perspective on um, what's important. And so I began to just pour out love that I didn't even know I had. And in that, 
they were pouring out love into my heart. And I started to have women's conferences and retreats and started to kind of take this out of Africa and into my own community and, and begin to just love on women because I found that loving on people brought love back to me. Instead of me trying to find love um, by being somebody I wasn't, I was just being who I was. Does that make sense? Yeah. I was, I was being who I was because I was finally starting to see that it wasn't about me. There was something bigger and there was something that, um, that had more value than my own struggles and my own concerns. And so I had to get outside of myself and see that there were people that needed something that I had to give. And so in that process of doing that and, and going to Africa, I thought surely I was going to be a full-time missionary in Africa when my husband retired. And my last trip to um, Rwanda, I went and I went to a compound that had been turned into an orphanage. It was not really an orphanage. It's a, it's a home for children. The uh, woman that runs it doesn't like for it to be called an orphanage because she said this is their home, which it is. Mm -hmm. and, um, and something happened to me there. I didn't have a mission. I didn't go with a team. I didn't even really know what I was there for. But God began to break my heart in a way that wasn't my brokenness. It was his brokenness. And I got to see that this compound had been used as a brothel hmm. for, I didn't even know what that meant. Honestly, I didn't even know what brothel meant. I didn't even know what that looked like. And so it sent me on a journey to find out what was happening to me and what I was seeing and what God was showing me, um, which then led me to the beloved Haven. Oh. Um, I didn't even know that sex trafficking or human trafficking even existed. I may have seen it on the streets when I was in Africa. I probably passed it. I'm sure that I did the more that I find out about it now as I see young children on the sides of the road begging for money. You know, that's a form of human trafficking. Um, I didn't know that. I just thought that was a way of survival for them. And it is it's actually in those countries. It is, but it's also a form of trafficking. And so God began to break my heart for this when I didn't even understand it. So my journey of, of life has really always been about my heart being broken and not really understanding what the brokenness was, but there was a reason for it in the beginning that led me to be able to be a voice for these women who no one really even knows exist. You know, I speak many places um, and people look at me like I have three heads because they cannot believe that this happens, that it happens in our community. It's, it's definitely easier to say this is a third world country problem than it is an American problem. But I'm here to tell you that we have had women right here in our community reach out to us where this is happening to them. And, and so I would love to take credit and say it was me who woke up one morning and had this, this desire and this dream, but God actually had develop this in me from a very young age through my own brokenness to be able to be broken for these women and to be a voice for them.
Yeah. And I, I know we got connected because we have a mutual friend, Andrea Gaines, who was on the podcast as well. Right. And um, she mentioned a little tiny bit about this in her podcast interview about how, you know, they opened their school or their, not their school, their home for children um, in Ethiopia. And how she said it was because she would see those children on the street and she's like, they're not just selling like they, it might just look like they're selling like cigars or, you know, whatever, or cigarettes or she's like, but some of them are selling their bodies because they're, they're bought to do that. Like they were bought from their own family to do that. And that's just heartbreaking, but it's even more heartbreaking that, uh, that it's happening in our own country because we don't, we think first world problems, right? Like our iPhone's not working, but, um, it's actually happening here too. And it's amazing that people are, are reaching out to you to talk to you about what's going on. Do you often, I know you posted about this on Facebook and I comment about how we get in our own bubble and we forget that other things are going on around us. So do you often run into people who don't believe that this is even a problem? Absolutely. And honestly, Megan, I didn't believe it was a problem. I lived in my own bubble. Just like I said earlier, um, you know, when we have our own problems. We have our own set of trials and tribulations. It's real easy for us to not see outside of that. Mm -hmm. um, I know I did it for most of my life. I was so focused on what was happening to me that I did not even know that there was a world out there that was broken and in need of someone to notice. And even when I took my first trips to Africa and I saw this on the street, I never gave it a second thought. I just assumed that's what they did. You know, this was just, this was just the way they lived. This was the way that they survived. And who was I to, to um, make a comment about it or to do anything about it? Um, because I was focused on what was happening in me. I was there to get healing. I was there to um, bring healing. So it was this, it was this exchange that I was called in my own bubble as well. So I completely understand it. Um, I think that if anybody has traveled to a third world country, they can all come back and say, oh, yeah, we saw it. I mean, it's all over the streets for sure, whether it's begging or um, whether it's, it's child prostitution or, or um, I don't know. There's so many different uh, – a mother out there with her son and using the, the son as bait to, to um, give you – this story that she can't feed her children, but yet there may be a man on the corner. That's actually the one that's taking all the money. She's not getting any of it, but we don't, we don't pay attention to it because it's not our problem. Mm -hmm. You know, and I find that a lot is that unless it's personally affecting you, it's not your problem. Mm -hmm. Just like I said, all the things that were happening to me in my life because they were personally affecting me, that was my problem. I didn't have time to deal with anybody else's. I had my own. And so I go out and I speak and a lot of times I get very frustrated. I have a really hard time. I'll tell my board many times before we go out and, and speak to a group. I'm like, yeah, I'm not real hopeful that this is going to go very far. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of people either run out the door as soon as I'm finished. So it's usually not a dry eye in the room. Yeah. Um, Cause it's a, it's a tough subject. It's mm -hmm. heavy. It's really, really heavy. And I usually bring one of our stories that a young girl actually sent me through an email and I read it and it's tough. 
it's tough. It's hard for me to sometimes to even get through it. And I've read it a gazillion times. Um, so they either try to escape really quickly or they come up and they're like, oh, I just can't believe what you're doing. Oh, you're so awesome. This is so great. I'm glad that you're doing this. And I, I think it's two things. I think people are scared to get too close or they just don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. But I always tell people after I go and speak, I said, well, I know this is happening. They're getting in their car and this is on their mind because this is a, a really heavy topic. So you can't just shake it off. You're going to think about it. Um, and you're either going to go back to your everyday life or you're going to do something to make a difference. So what so, can people do to make a difference? Uh, well, one of the things that we're doing right now is we try to bring community awareness just so people can identify it. Because if you don't know what it looks like, it's real easy to just walk by it. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people just say, well, they're just prostitutes. You know, they're just prostitutes. They, that's what they want to do. And I always say, well, let me ask you this. So I, I say, what little girl sits on the edge of her bed and dreams about being a prostitute? Hmm. These are not dreams of a young girl. Somewhere along the line, something has happened to that little girl who has now become a woman on the street selling herself not by her own choice because something caused her to make this decision. Something has forced her into having to think that this is all she is worthy of, that this is her value. And the more that we talk to survivors and victims, it's the same thing over and over and over again. There's been some kind of sexual abuse from the time they were a young girl or they have been told this is all that they're worth. Is their body is all they have to offer. So the mindset is what we really have to begin to work on, is being able to break down those walls that people have in their minds about what prostitution is and why these women choose prostitution. And so that's the hardest thing is just being able to get people to one, understand that this is not a choice and two, how to identify it. If you see it, how can you say, I think that something might be off here. Something just doesn't look right. And to know what to do. And we're actually trained in law enforcement because it's a new thing for law enforcement out here. You know, they just pick up prostitutes either for drug, you know, uh, drug charges or prostitution or um, whatever else they might be out there doing. Um, and that's how they process it. So, you know, they, they send them to, to, you know, they send them to the county jail they say, you know, we picked them up for heroin use and this is going to be the charge. And then no one ever goes in to find out more of the story mm. because no one knows how to identify it. So they're not looking for it. And that's what we're seeing a lot out here, especially in our seven counties that we're working with over the last two and a half years. That's really kind of what we've been developing is relationships with our law enforcement 
our service providers, and with Homeland Security. And speaking into the community, because we live, we live in the neighborhoods where this could be taking place. And so if we're not aware of it, we can't see it. We won't even recognize it. And it's in our schools, it's in our churches, it's in our places of business, you know, and, um, and they don't look like, um, I always tell people, doesn't look like Taken, the movie Taken, you know, that's the first thing yeah. people think of is, um, you know, she's been abducted, you know, in a foreign country and, and her dad comes and rescues. Gosh, if we had dads like that, mm. we surely would not have a problem. <laughs> I tell you that, I mean, because... It's not out in the open. It's all hidden. It's all underground. You know, a lot of it's done on the internet. You don't even see it anymore. You hardly see street prostitution at all. Um, and most of these victims are not abducted. You know, they're, they're uh, thinking that they're in a relationship. They're brainwashed. Right, absolutely. They, they begin to, these traffickers are really good at what they do because they begin to uh, build trust. And, they, and, and how they do that is by talking to them on the, on the internet. And these girls will tell their whole stories of what's going on. And he just feeds into that. He or she, we, I mean, there's women traffickers as well. Um, and... Um, and they use what information that these girls are already given them. And they begin to build a relationship. And before you know it, they think that this person on the other end of this computer is in love with them. Mm. And then they're ready to meet. And I mean, they'll take months. We've heard years of grooming these girls. There is a lot of time invested in it, but you're talking about a lot of money. So it's worth it to them. So a lot of times we can't even see it because it's going on through an exchange on the computer. So technically the girls are abducted, just not in the way we think of. Like somebody didn't just come up and snatch them. They've built yeah, this relationship. Right. So the girls go willingly, not realizing what they're getting themselves into. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, what 14-year-old girl doesn't want to be noticed? Mm-hmm. You know, especially if she was a 14-year-old girl like I was, who needed somebody to see me, who, who, who needed somebody to love me and to say those words to me. It was real easy. I can see myself as being a real easy target. And I think that's what draws my heart to this, is I know how easy it would have been for me. You know, we didn't have computers. We didn't have cell phones. My daughter says, Mom, what kind of cell phone did you have when you were 14? <laughs> I don't have one. I mean, so, but had it been, mm -hmm. and somebody would have reached out to me and said, hey, I saw your profile picture. You sure are fine, girl. I would have been like, really? You noticed me? And a lot of these girls are broken. A lot of these girls are living in single family homes. A lot of them are dealing with issues that um, they don't even know how to sort out themselves. And then all of a sudden somebody's there yeah. that cares and is listening and is paying attention. And that's all it takes. I mean, it's really that easy.
I ended up in a relationship when I was a teenager. So my parents divorced when I was 13, they split up and they aired all their dirty laundry to a 13 year old that I shouldn't have known any of this stuff. So it was really um, insane. And I was living in Florida with my dad and I got in a, a relationship with a man. I, I think I was like 15 years old and he was like 20. Mm -hmm. Like, because he paid attention to me, right? He, you know, know, 21, he was 21. Um, He paid attention to me. He told me I was pretty and he was the very first person I slept with willingly um, Mm -hmm. because I am also a rape survivor as well. Um, But the first person I slept with willingly, he was six years older than me. Like, that was ridiculous. I was a little girl. Like, there was... There wasn't even like a thought, but I was, I just wanted so badly for somebody to love me. So what if it hadn't been somebody that was just, I mean, all he wanted was a piece of, you know, what if it was somebody like that? Right. Right. See, Megan, so you can completely understand where I'm coming from um, because I was in the same situation. I was in an abusive relationship as a teenager. I was with a guy who was 10 years older than me. My mom would have died. She would have known. Um, Actually, he was married. Um, and so I didn't, and I didn't care because all I wanted is somebody to love me. And I didn't care what that looked like, even though it never really brought me the satisfaction that I needed. It just made me more broken. Mm -hmm. It just took more pieces out of my heart. But in that moment, you don't see that until you become a married woman until you become a mother, until you begin to see that all of these things that have occurred in your life weren't normal. These, these are not things that should have happened to you. Um, you should not have experienced this as a 14-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. These are not what 14-year-old girls are doing. I look at my 14-year-old daughter and I think, oh my gosh. Yeah, I have one too. And I'm just like, she wouldn't even like, that's not even a thought in her head. She's Absolutely. <laughs> and thank God. I'm like, thank God she is nothing like me. She is so confident in who she is. And she knows what she wants. And she's got it together. And, um, and I'm just like, yes, yes. That's what it should look like when you're 14 years old. You should be embracing life. It should be like the best time for you. Um, but when you are a 14-year-old that is just wounded and broken and, and just looking for um, validation somewhere, it's a whole different story for that young girl. And then she becomes 21 and she's selling her body on the streets. Now, there might be parents listening right now, like moms listening and going like, well, how can I prevent this from happening? Like, what do I do? Do you guys with Beloved Haven work on preventative, um, you know, sharing preventative ways? One of the things that, yeah, one of the things that I will um, constantly try to drill um, into moms and to dads is that keep a close eye on what your children are looking at on the internet. Monitor the apps that they're um, downloading onto their phone. Um, Check and see who they're talking to. Um, I tell my daughter all the time, let me see your phone. Mm -hmm. I want to see who you're chatting with. 
when you're on Instagram, I want to see, you know, who your contacts are. I mean, you have, I mean, 14 year olds don't like it because yeah. you're all up in their business. Um, my daughter will tell me all the time, you're scaring me. You're scaring me. I said, well, I don't want to scare you, but I want you to be aware because mm-hmm. this is happening. And there is somebody on the other end of that computer 24 hours a day, just waiting yeah. to start up a conversation with a young girl willing to give him information. Yeah. It's, and so you have to really monitor what, and to talk about it. I know it's a hard topic and no one likes to talk about um, things that deal with sex and then to deal with the fact that somebody could be selling your daughter or your son. I mean, we have, you know, we have um, a couple that we know in Greenville, North Carolina, they're opening up the first um, boys home for sex um, trafficked um, young boys. And so it happens to guys too. It's not just girls. Um, so it's, it is a tough subject, but it's something we have to talk about. Netflix has some great documentaries. Do you know some off the top of your head that I can put um, in the show notes? I actually just watched one called Trust. And that was actually an exchange between a young girl um, and a guy on the internet. Mm-hmm. And she thought she was talking to someone the same age. And he ended up being, I believe, 35 years old. And she ended up meeting with them and ended up having sex with them. Um, and they found out that this was something that he had, had been doing with many other girls. But what was so fascinating about this is she was bound and determined, this young girl, to protect him because mm-hmm. she thought he loved her. Even after all the lies and, and, and all of the truth came out, she still could not face the fact that he had done this to her, that he definitely had loved her because he had spent a year grooming her. Mm-hmm. So um, there are some out there. Some of them are a little graphic. You kind of got to watch them and, and see. But if you just go on Netflix and you just type in human trafficking search, there will be tons that pop up. But I do say you have to kind of um, let a parent view those first because some of them are a little bit uh, x-rated <laughs> but it's it's good as as people out there I mean maybe not even if we we can't find ones that we can watch with our kids but for us to open our minds here and that's one of the biggest things that I've been working on with the podcast is being very open about all sorts of kind of things like this is not like a People come on, they're like, well, maybe I shouldn't say that. And I'm like, no, you say what you want to say on this podcast, because I want women to open their minds to the fact that things are going on that we don't even realize are going on or things that we don't even want to open our mind to, because mind you, we were, we were brought up a certain way with certain beliefs and perceptions that, you know, if you were brought up in podunk upstate New York, like me, there wasn't. I never knew about sex trafficking when I was a kid. Like, mind you, I knew about cow tipping, but I didn't know about sex trafficking. Well, girl, I live in Currituck County. So I'm mean, here. Everybody's kind of like, you're saying the word sex trafficking in Currituck County? Are you crazy? I mean, yeah, I get it. I get it. Now, I grew up in Virginia Beach um, in the Chicks Beach area. So, I mean, there maybe it would have gone over a little bit smoother i could have probably mentioned that of course at that time in my life as a young girl i never even 
knew anything about that. Yeah. But I could say now when I look back, there are many times when that could have been a possibility for it me. For, I mean, for me too. I mean, mind you, there is human trafficking and drug trafficking that goes on right near where I'm from across the reservation. Uh, they, call, they have what's called, they made a movie about it. It's called The Ice Bridge. So in the middle of winter, it gets so frozen over in the St. Lawrence River that they're able to drive across this one area um, and they will, it's human trafficking they do, drug trafficking, you name it, it goes on up there. So it wasn't that it wasn't something that actually could happen where I'm from. It's, it wasn't even something that we talked about or something that was even a thing. But just because we didn't know existed before doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Right, right. I think the more that we talk about it, and the more that we bring awareness, and that's kind of what we've been really, really trying to do here, as frustrating as it is, and believe me, I have a lot of frustrating days um, where I'm ready to say, I'm done. Yeah. Nobody cares. Um, and then I wake up and I'm just as passionate about it as I was the day before. And so um, I think that just talking about it, bringing awareness, it's the same thing as domestic violence. No one wanted 15, 20 years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, no one wanted to talk about domestic violence. That was a behind the doors, a family issue. <laughs> Police didn't even get involved in that. Law enforcement didn't even go and say, hey, we hear that there's like something going on here. You got your neighbors over here saying that you're out here beating your wife yeah, that was an issue that was taken care of between a husband and a wife or a boyfriend and a girlfriend yeah. um, and the more that people talked about it and the more that awareness was 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 shown on it as, as the light you know comes on and people begin to see this is a problem then they take notice yeah. And you'll see people coming out of the woodworks, really, once you start to, I mean, we've had people come up to us and say, you know, I think I might know somebody who could have possibly been in this situation. Yeah. But I would have never known that this is what it was. Yeah, I'm a domestic violence survivor myself. And I grew up in a household that was very, um, my dad is very verbally, well, both my parents to each other were verbally and emotionally um, abusive towards each other but I never saw them like hit each other, you know, and stuff like that. So growing up when I got into my abusive relationship, when it first started with the, you know, verbal and emotional, I thought this is normal because this Absolutely. is what I grew up around. Absolutely. So, so have you seen that maybe there are generations of sex trafficking? Very much so. Very much so. I've heard many survivors share their stories and saying, I thought, Every family did this. Wow. I did not know that dads didn't have sex with their daughters. I didn't know that brothers didn't have sex with their sisters. I didn't know that uncles didn't have sex with their nieces. I didn't know that when my dad had parties, invited all of his friends over, that my friends weren't having sex with their dad's friends too. Holy shit. Yes. So, I mean, and, and it's, it's, I go to some of these, girl, I will tell you, I go to some of these um, trainings or conferences and I sit for six to seven hours and listen to some of the most horrific things one mind can take. 
I mean, you feel like your heart is going to explode. It's 75 outside, the sunshine, and most people are on the beach. I'm here listening to the darkest stories ever. And I walk out of there going, oh, my gosh, this cannot be real. But, I mean, because it sounds like a scripted horror movie Yeah. when they share their stories. And they think that this was happening in every household. You got to think with the, the climate here in the United States, you know, whether it's political or whatever. Um, and a lot of people are, uh, you saw it go down when the, you know, the election was going on, people tearing you apart on or tearing each other apart on social media. And all I can say is think is we were all brought up with different beliefs and perceptions. So who are, who are we to sit there and judge somebody? Because that, that's how they were brought up, you know, like, I'm not saying it's okay. You know, I'm not saying that how people act sometimes what they say is okay, but we have to be more empathetic to what's going on with them because they don't know any better. Right. Absolutely. Right. That's why I always say, you know, I think that my whole mission is in life is just to love well. Mm -hmm. as, as, as much as I was looking for love, in all the wrong places, really, it's about love. It's really about love that makes the world a better place. Oh, I agree. And so until we can get that right, until we can put aside everybody's differences and everybody's past situations and stop judging and, and throwing swords and, and pointing fingers, until we can really love better, this world is going to be a hot mess mm -hmm. because we're so busy pointing out people's flaws and people's differences and, um, and not realizing that many of these, especially these young women that we encounter have not chosen this. Yeah. They were many of them born into it, not knowing any difference. They just think that this is the norm. And um, I know for this one young girl that I was talking about that sent me the email, and we share her story. Um, she's actually from the um, resort area down here. And she had a mother who was a drug addict mm. that loved her very much, but had a drug addiction. And drugs meant more. And so she did not have a job obviously. And so she had no way of supplying her drug need, but she had a daughter. Oh no. And so in this young girl's mind, she was helping her mother. Yeah. That's just, that's just so sad. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's just multiple stories I could tell you. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's heartbreaking, but in the end, there is hope. There is hope. We see these young women live again and live, um, live fully and be able to, um, give back because of what they've encountered that they're able to come from that just as you, as, as me, you know, we come from our, our broken past and we're able to use those places to give back and to, and to love these, these women right where they are. And that's what I've seen these survivors do. And so even in the midst of how 
devastating their stories are when they get up there and they share them and then they turn around and say, I'm grateful for what I've walked through because now I'm able to help so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. And they point yeah. out these beautiful women that they have linked arms with and been able to walk alongside of them and bring them out of that place as well. That's just amazing. And we're running out of time. This has been amazing. I really want people to be mindful of the fact that what I really took out of what you just said is this is not a specific stereotypical problem where we could say it's, you know, one income level or one uh, race or, you know, one area of the, the world. It is a problem that is everywhere. Like you said, in in businesses, you know, people that are, you know, running their own business, you know, CEOs, you know, everywhere from the girl whose mom didn't have money for her drugs to the person who might be the CEO of a company doing this because that's how they were, that's how it is. That's how they were brought up. They think it's okay. Right. Um, so if there's one thing that you want to leave people about, you know, sex trafficking, what is one thing that you would want people to say, to know, you know, one thing that you may not have mentioned so far? that these are human beings and they deserve and they need the, let's see how I can say it. They need us to take notice and we need to pay attention because we may be the only we may be the only people speaking out for them. We may be the only people that see them. They're not saying, "Hey, hey, look at me, look at me. I'm a victim of sex trafficking." They may just give you a look. Mm -hmm. And we have to be able to identify it and to see it and to love well. I mean, I just think that we just need to not even love well. I think we just need to love better. Yeah. You know, I think that um, we can look at somebody and think they're not worth it. I agree. Tina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing about this, this topic. I'm going to link all of your stuff up in the show notes over at inspiredwomenpodcast.com. So everybody can get involved in the best way they can connect with you, you know, hear more and, you know, reach out in any way, join your community. I know I'll be, you sent me that and I'll be linking that up as well. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Megan, for having me. And um, I look forward to hearing from you again soon. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the inspired women podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, share this out with your friends and family, and join us in the Inspire Women community on Facebook. I'll catch you next week.